Hello, everyone, and welcome to Speaking with Joy, a podcast to fill your soul, challenge your mind, and make you brave. I'm your host, Joy Clarkson, and an evangelist for all things good, true, and beautiful. So make yourself a cup of tea, find somewhere comfortable, and let's dive in to this week's episode. Isn't this wonderful? I feel as though I were just being born. I'm not alone anymore. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to Reading with Joy, my summer book club. This year, we are exploring the delightful, scientific, wonder-filled, love-filled wrinkle in time. And the great fun of this summer's book club is that each week I have been inviting a friend along to chat with me about this delightful book, which has been so fun. In past summers, I did book clubs, but I tended to talk through them all on my own. But that is not the fun of doing a book club. The fun of doing a book club is talking with interesting people about interesting books. But before we get into that, tell us a bit about who you are and where you are and what you're up to in life. Yeah, so my name is Caitlin. I am a THM student at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm finishing up my degree this year. Um, I work at a church in Dallas part-time, so I work with uh, women in their 20s and 30s and just lead Bible studies, and it's kind of like the dream gig. I just get to hang out with women and talk about the Bible. and. Um, so yeah, I live in Dallas. I just uh, finished writing a little while ago a book called The Liturgy of Politics that will come mm. out on September 8th of this year, which is really crazy. I can't believe that that has happened or that it's coming out. Um, we were talking earlier, I had no plans on writing a book <laughs> while in seminary, <laughs> but um, really just had this opportunity fall in my lap and loved studying um, the intersection between spiritual formation and political engagement. Mm. And so that was like a couple years of just studying that and working on this book. And I think that's the kind of work that I just really want to do forever is something that's really connected to the church, but also has something to do with our common life in the world and what that means for us to engage with that well. So that's kind of me. Oh my goodness. Well, as we were chatting before, it is quite an undertaking to write something in the middle of grad school and especially on such an interesting topic and what a time to be writing about what yeah. it means to be a Christian and uh, and love our neighbor and love God and live faithfully um, mm -hmm. when it can feel very impossible sometimes. So I think that's uh, a brave thing for you to be writing about and thinking about. Um, and I think it's so important to, to be able to do that in the context of a church. I feel like so much of life is just so abstracted. So getting to know what does it look like with my congregation, with my people, um, to, to walk that well. So go yeah. you. And I hope that you <laughs> find pockets of rest in the midst of this craziness. Mm -hmm. So Caitlin, when did you first discover Madeline Lingle and read this book? 
So I actually have with me right now my mother's copy of A Wrinkle in Time. It is like the really old oh my uh, gosh. existing cover. I um, love the 1970s covers that are always like a yeah. little a little like psychedelic fever dreamy. Oh yeah, they're scary. This is not a <laughs> cute cover. <laughs> um yeah, and I so I think I was probably 10 or 11 and I I don't remember who said this. I listened to the two previous episodes, but just Maybe it was you who said this, but it really did feel like it was one of the first books that like I liked mm-hmm. that it wasn't just something that someone else had given me or mm-hmm. that I really think I found it in a shared bookshelf in my mm-hmm. family's home and was like, what is this? It was so weird looking. And <laughs> uh, also growing up in a family that was a really conservative Christian family, mm-hmm. my mom was a missionary kid. So she grew up overseas and kind of had some exposure to like kind of scary stuff as a kid. And so she was really, you know, concerned about what me and my sister would read that was Mm -hmm. too scary or was like sci-fi or supernatural. So Mm -hmm. like the kind of stereotype about conservative Christians, like not reading Harry Potter, you know, that. (laughs) Yeah. So I really didn't read anything like this. And so to see like a book that looked like this in my mom's bookshelf was really, you know, it was like, oh, my mom is this person who had a life and she had a book when she was a kid that... (laughs) you read. And so, um, that was the first Madeline Langle that I ever read. And I haven't read as much as I would like to have of her fiction. I've read some more of her nonfiction Mm -hmm. since then as an adult, but this was one of the first books that I feel like I read that was kind of science fiction, um, kind of fantasy and that I was allowed to read as a, you know, Christian kid Mm -hmm. and, um, was definitely very different than anything I ever read as a kid, especially just in terms of everything I read was pretty familiar. Like it de- mm. described a world that looked like something I, you know, lived in and could relate to. And this, you know, Meg, I can relate to very deeply. <laughs> so the like magic of this world, I didn't, I had never really read anything that was like that. And so that was my, my first exposure. <laughs> I remember in your tweet, you said that it was the, I think it was you who said it was the first time you thought Christians could have an imagination. Yes. And I feel like Madeline Lingle is a gateway to like Lord of the Rings and, you know, (laughs) Lewis. And no, I just, I love her. And I feel like this book is, there's this, um, there's this wonderful little essay by an academic called Alison Milbank. And she writes about how fantasy, it, it makes strange, like it kind of helps us look at the world and it turns it's on its head so that what we're used to seeing, what we're used to kind of taking as ordinary straight reality is suddenly kind of made strange but that means that we then re-engage with our normal worlds with kind of a renewed sense of mystery and appreciation mm-hmm. and faith that we kind of might have lost if we hadn't engaged with literature like that so it's kind of like it helps us see the world with new eyes and in some ways kind of like sharpen our vision for ordinary life and I feel like that was I think this is a book that does that also it's very fun to me that we both have the mom the mom connection yeah <laughs> because that was the same with my mom she read it all she had pneumonia several times as a kid and she would read this while she was um you know healing and so it was fun to have that and then it was one of my first books and then to feel like we shared this but at different times and mm-hmm. yeah so it's so fun to have you on and talking about this and Um, Okay, so this week we're discussing chapter three. And as a reminder to everyone, the way that you can engage in discussion, I started off doing Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, but then I realized that people just really engage better with discussion on Facebook and Instagram. So anyone listening to this episode, after you listen to it, go on and chime in with your thoughts 
on Instagram and Facebook. I'll put up a post and uh, listen to everybody else's. Every week I learn something um, that I I wouldn't have known on my own through reading the comments. For instance, last week, Haley Stewart and I were like, why is Calvin named Calvin? Why is he Calvin O'Keefe? And um, I just got an email uh, from Madeline Lingle's granddaughter, who's actually going to be joining us in a couple of episodes. And she said that it was her attempt at um, ecumenicism because it's Calvin from the Protestant and O'Keefe is, you know, very Irish name. So I learned that. That's fun. And then I learned... um, that Charles Wallace is the combination of the two names to whom the book is dedicated. So it's dedicated to a Charles and a Wallace. Oh. So that's what I learned last week. So every week I always enjoy reading through people's comments because I'm always like, oh, why am I leading this book club? You guys teach me stuff. (laughs) Um, So, okay, let's start off with a summary of this week's chapter. Caitlin, do you want to give it a shot? What are just like the blow-by-blow bullet points of what happens in this week's chapter? Mm, yeah, so we, I think we start right in with um, Meg and Charles Wallace and Calvin kind of coming back mm-hmm. to the house. Um, and so you and I were saying earlier, it's just, it's so sweet because it's kind of his introduction to them as a family, him meeting Mrs. Murray. And mm-hmm. I forget who earlier said this, but it does seem very much like in Little Women. Yeah, uh, it's a very Lori. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like he's he's welcomed into the home. Um, he tells Meg, do you know how lucky you are? It's very sweet. He uh, is introduced via photograph to her father, mm-hmm. and um, that's really sweet, too. Um, he realizes that she's smart, which mm-hmm. is, you know, sort of a surprise that she can, she has a, a different way of doing math, which I relate to deeply. Um, My different way of doing math is just being very bad at math. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I've always in awe of Meg and anyone who's good at math. I'm I'm studying for the GRE right now, and it's like I've had how many years since I've taken math, and I have no idea what I'm doing. So, the yeah. idea that that she just kind of intuitively gets some of this stuff is really mind blowing. Yeah. <laughs> um. They so yeah they hang out. They have supper. Um. They have a, this conversation between Meg and her mother. I think is really sweet, where they're talking about Charles Wallace and how he's different, and her mom just saying. Sometimes there's things that we cannot explain and working through how, um, and then I think it's not too far after that or before that, that uh, Calvin sort of says like, I don't know what we're doing, but we're going somewhere. And that seems sort of related. Um, Yeah, there's this consistent theme of like, things are happening and I don't know how to explain them, but that doesn't mean they're not real. (laughs) Yes, that doesn't mean they're not real. Yes, that's that's the other nice part. Um, and, And I really like too how... Uh, Meg asks her mother, what do you make of Calvin? And he's like there when she asks him. <laughs> and Mrs. Murray says, I don't want to make anything of Calvin. I like him very much and I'm delighted he's found his way here. <laughs> yes, I love that. And that's just, this has been a consistent theme, but Mrs. Murray just takes people for who they are and where they are. It doesn't try to make anything of them. She just wants to be, there's a great William Blake quote where he says, the most sublime thing is to behold another. And I feel like th- that's just Mrs. Murray. She's just sublimely beholding everyone. <laughs> yeah, I love that. There you are. And I'm glad that you're here. Yeah. Um, and then Calvin and Meg leave. They have a sort of sweet walk. He's so kind to her and wipes her tears away as she's as she's mourning her father and um, his, you know, disappearance. 
And also just like a very, I just remember being a kid and having Mm -hmm. this moment where she takes her glasses off Mm. and, you know, her eyes are really beautiful and being like, oh, wow, what a, what a moment. Um, And then this is my favorite part of how this chapter works is that it starts out so familiar, so Mm -hmm. family. And even if you didn't kind of have the same family as the Murrays, Mm -hmm. you sort of know, like, this is, this is, yeah, this is kind of how life can be. And mm-hmm. um, even Calvin referencing his own family and calling home and you kind of get a glimpse of how his family is. Both of those feel kind of familiar. And then it ends with Charles Wallace showing up and being like, this is it. We're going to go. And then the very last part of it, they see the two other misses that they know. And then Charles Wallace tells them Mrs. Witch is there who they don't see. And the last thing is her saying, that she finds it too tiring to materialize. It's like, that's really the shift into like, we've had some glimpses of weird stuff, but like now we're really going somewhere weird. (laughs) Exactly. Well, because before you could be like, well, maybe Mrs. Who and Mrs. Watson are just like a little eccentric. But like now suddenly we have a character who can be materialized or not materialized. We're, we're, we are no longer in, um, we're no longer in Kansas anymore, Toto. No. No. <laughs> uh, I love that. Also, I've been listening to, I have been reading and listening back through the audiobook that Madeline Lingle reads, oh. which is so fun. And she has the most, like, um, just very kind of unremarkable voice, if that makes sense. Like, it's just very good, whatever. Uh. But when, they, when she does Mrs. Witch's um, thing, she does it very dramatically, and they put an echo on it. So everything else is, like, totally oh. not produced, but Mrs. Witch's, it's too tiring to materialize, has this great, like, kind of echoey ah. um, strangeness. But, yeah, I agree. We are suddenly cast into something we can't explain. We've had all these intimations of it that could have been explained away, but suddenly we are about to be cast into the adventure. And we have an intimation that the adventure is going to be finding Meg's dad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, now let's just go back through and discuss some of the themes that come out in this chapter. For me, and we can just go back and forth. For me, one of the big themes is kind of belonging and the difference between what we think about belonging and if we actually belong. So the reason I chose that opening um, quote for this week's episode is because there's just this beautiful, joyous exultation that Calvin, who seems to be this very intuitive person, it seems like he just kind of like gets gut instincts <laughs> and then he does it and he's sure they're right. And he just feels like he has suddenly found a place to belong. And, um, and I was thinking about how interesting it is that Meg, you know, she's so relatable. She kind of has a pebble in her shoe about life. She feels kind of out of sorts, like she doesn't quite fit in. And I think she feels very much on the outs in some ways. But then you realize that when Calvin comes into this context, you see how much she actually really belongs and um, is belonged to by this whole family. And so that's the thing I was just thinking about. It, rem- it reminds me of that passage in scripture where it says that God will put the lonely in families. Mm. And, you know, Calvin, of course, has this massive family, but he doesn't feel like he belongs. And all of a sudden, just the simplicity of being in this crazy kind of quirky family is this moment of feeling like he belongs and like he's loved. And I've had similar experiences in my family. You know, obviously, I love my family a lot and we're very blessed, but we're also kind of crazy and loud and, you know everyone has an opinion and we're all fighters. <laughs> and it's so sometimes I'll get exhausted, you know, 
but then I, but whenever you have friends come in, I'll kind of like re-realize the gift of my family that can sometimes mm-hmm. even feel like an exhaustion. And I feel like that's what Meg is having this moment of is seeing her own family through the eyes of somebody else. And mm. yeah, so I don't know. That was, that was one theme that I was thinking about this week was kind of belonging, feeling like you don't belong when actually you, you have people you belong to. And then just that deep desire to have, have a person to belong to. So yeah, that's something I picked up. What did yeah. you notice this week? Well, and I like the way you said um, about her seeing it through his eyes, because one of the things I love about this chapter and also just about the book in general is like that thing you said earlier about having something familiar be made strange to you. Yeah. Um, One of the times I feel like I've experienced that most in my life was learning Greek Hmm. and trying to like work my way through a passage of scripture. Hmm. Um, I did it with pretty early on with uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And it Hmm. was like, as I translated, I was like, it's like I've never read these Mm. words before. It's just really, you know, this thing that's like the most familiar thing ever to me is suddenly new and really beautiful. And I love that it seems like that's what almost, that's why I like the end of this chapter. It's Mm -hmm. almost like, okay, we're grounded and familiar. Mm -hmm. Now let's imagine a world that could be really different. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's why I made the comment about Christians having imaginations. I feel like I, I didn't have a lot of exposure as a kid partially because of fear of things being too scary or too, mm-hmm. um, you know, witches or Halloween yeah. or like those kinds of things. But, but that I really missed some of that kind of having a sense of the world being on some level different than you thought mm-hmm. and having some other sort of, and you'll get, we'll get this like farther in the book, but like maybe things are more mysterious than I thought, or yeah. maybe there's some other story going on at the same time as my story and I can be a part of that other story. And yeah. it seems like the end of the chapter is them sort of like entering into this other story that's so exciting. And um, I told you earlier, one of the like small things I really love about mm-hmm. this chapter is the fact that um, Charles Wallace and all of his like strange, smart little mm-hmm. kidness uh, asks Calvin to read him Genesis, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is just like very sweet and strange. And I've been reading um, Madeline Lingle's book on Genesis, mm. uh, called, and it was good. Mm. And I have loved how she's done that same thing. Even, even though it's not fiction yeah. of talking about Genesis using very poetic language and her mm. own story. And she's talking about beginnings more generally and about creation for herself and what it means for her to image God as a creator of things. Mm. And it's been really helpful as someone who spends a ton of time reading, very like propositional theology type things mm-hmm. to to read this book that there's times she says something and I go, oh, well, that's not quite precise. Like that's yeah. not quite how it goes. And I, yeah. I kind of have a disagreement with that. And instead going, oh, but I want, I want to think about the world this way. I want mm-hmm. it to be made strange to me again mm-hmm. so that I also can have an imagination for the future of like, could things be different than they are? And could yeah. I have a part in those things being different? Yeah. And I appreciate that that Meg has that kind of um, suspicion about all of this. Mm-hmm. And yet you'll see her kind of grow in her ability to to do something mm-hmm. um, about the circumstances that are the way they are. And 
Um, yeah, I just I, love the way that progresses. <laughs> yeah, and the sense of being swept up into this kind of grand, I always like the way Dallas Willard talks about the, the divine conspiracy. And you mm. feel like uh, Meg is getting swept up into that. Uh, it reminds me of two things. One is I had a, so I went to Biola, which of course the Bible Institute of Los Angeles. I don't know if you knew that in my undergrad. I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. And so I did my Bible. I almost did them. I really, in retrospect, I wish that I had just done a major because I was like two classes away from doing the Bible major. Um, but I had a professor who every summer would read Lord of the Rings because he said it helped him. The way he put it was it renewed my biblical imagination. And he was like, you know, the thing is, when we read scripture, really what you're being presented with is this ongoing, huge, kind of vast conspiracy of God's loving interaction with the world and this kind of promise of a narrative that is huge and almost unimaginable, but that we also get to participate in, you know. And he said, sometimes when your whole training is to be precise, to go in, you lose the ability to like see that and enter into it. And so I loved that he said one thing he would always do is he would read the Lord of the Rings every summer because it helped him be like, this is this is the attitude that I enter into as I read scripture is what is the story that I'm being told and that I can enter mm-hmm. into. And then the second thing it reminds me of, last last year, I so often say last semester just for any passage of time, <laughs> like last year, last week, last semester, it's all the same thing. Um, Last year, we read uh, Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton. And there's one of my favorites, kind of like one of my linchpin essays, is he has an essay in there called On Fairy Story. Nope, that's Tolkien. I think Ethics of Elfland, that's what it is. And um, obviously, I've read too much along these various lines. <laughs> but he talks, there's this great line where he says, fairy ta- In fairy tales, rivers run with wine so that we remember that in earth, uh, rivers run with water and in fairy tales apples are golden to remind us that in earth they're red the point being that like when we read a fairy tale we're like oh my gosh this world was created in a particular way and we take it as this kind of like gift that's mysterious and strange and he's like we there's the fact that things exist as they are is mysterious and strange but we lose <laughs> the capacity to notice that and so it's like these stories help us encounter the world as mysterious and strange and help us imagine what it would be like to enter into a bigger narrative. So I love that very much. Um, There is just this sweetness in this chapter, isn't there? Like, it's just so dear. Uh, What were some of your favorite sweet moments in the chapter? Well, one of the things I really love this little conversation between Meg and her mom as as Calvin has gone off with Charles Wallace and they're kind of away. And I mean, her relationship with her mom is is really sweet because you get the sense that Mrs. Murray understands her in a mm-hmm. way that she doesn't understand herself. Mm-hmm. But you also get a sense that, you know, Mrs. Murray's being so strong yeah. and trying to keep this family together. And it seems like there's moments where Meg sort of realizes, like, maybe she's a real person. Yeah. <laughs> um, and she kind of tries to tell her that when she's she's in this conversation saying, mm-hmm. you know, I'm still quite a young woman. I know that's hard for you to imagine, but I miss your father and, you know, this is not the life I imagined. And that's very relatable, I think, for most kids, that moment when you realize, my my parent is a person. (laughs) My parent is a person. My parent gets lonely sometimes or struggles or... Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And her to then, in part of that conversation and her mother being so vulnerable with her, which I imagine, I'm not a parent, but I imagine Mm -hmm. that would also be really hard Mm because you almost 
you'd almost want to be the strong, stable, you know, there's something really secure about that, that maybe when your kid sees you kind of fall apart a little bit would be scary. And then for her to follow it up with this conversation where she's trying to just say, um, she says, just because we don't understand doesn't mean the explanation doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And Meg says, but I like to understand things, <laughs> which mm-hmm. I very much relate to. Yeah. And then they have this whole conversation about Charles Wallace and how mm-hmm. we don't really understand why he's so different, but he is. And it ends with Meg saying, I guess I'll just have to accept it without understanding it. And Mrs. Murray saying, maybe that's really the point I was trying to put a pro- put across. Mm. And it's so sweet, too, to have, like, I think sometimes with these sorts of stories, it's like the stereotype that there's something magical that happens and the kids run off and experience yes. something. And they come back and the parents just didn't really know. Yeah. And I appreciate not only are we going to get to the father yeah. and his involvement in this, but even at this point, it's like Mrs. Murray isn't playing the kind of stereotypical parent role of, no, everything's fine. You yeah. know, there's nothing abnormal. You could are imagining things, you yeah. know, the wardrobe, it just has a regular back. Like yeah. <laughs> it's instead, it's like, she's freaked out that this strange woman uh-huh. knows about a tesseract. She's aware that she doesn't quite understand everything about the world. And mm-hmm. I love that feeling of a parent almost passing down to the kid. The world is more magical than you imagine. And there yeah. are things you don't understand and you don't have to be able, I mean, as a scientist for her to say, you don't have to be able to explain it all to just yeah. know there is an explanation and, and there's something mysterious about it is really, you know, that's really sweet. Yeah. I love that. And she's doing exactly what you're we saying. She's helping her engage with the world as something that can't be controlled, mm-hmm. manipulated or necessarily understood all the time. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't press into it and try to understand and look for answers. But that knowing that we do that sometimes with answers that are too big to be pinned down in small ways. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I just have to say, Little Meg's and Calvin's little friendship romance thing is like this. I can't. I was. I've been reading a lot of Jane Austen, but I don't think I've read anything as romantic as as him taking off her little glasses and saying, "I hope nobody else sees your beautiful eyes." And like when he, the thing I love about Calvin is that Meg just like erupts frequently. She like she just has big feelings, and he just kind of continually just kind of is like just takes it and just kind of moves on and he doesn't make them smaller he doesn't invalidate them he just kind of he just takes it as it is and, and and moves forward and i just love that it reminds me of um there's a room of love i had it picked up there's a quote from wendell berry i think it's in hannah coulter where uh she's talking about how when you love somebody you kind of have this this room of love that you create that is just where you can be yourself and be known and be seen. And I feel like in his very young, obviously kind of childish, innocent way, Calvin makes a little room of love for Meg. You know what I mean? Where she can just be strange. Also, you know, as a 20 something who's been through life and had various experiences, I just love how like completely unabashed both of them are like Meg I think about three times is like, Calvin, you're very attractive. Like, she increases yes. in various ways. And I just love how uh, cute and like unashamed they are. But yeah, there's just this real sweetness in their friendship. And I think that's something we all have a desire for is a desire to be, to have a room of love made for us where we can have huge feelings and and not be not have somebody either like be provoked by the feelings into great drama nor deny them but just kind of mm-hmm. take it as it is so I just love their little friendship and their budding romance 
Yeah, and I love that it even says when she's like at the height of her um, frustration and sadness and she says, I think I'm a biological mistake, which is just really heartbreaking. But also I feel like most people have been like, yeah, I've... At some <laughs> point, if, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then she, I love that Madeline Lingle wrote, now she was waiting to be contradicted. It's like, that's such a classic, uh-huh. you know, young girl thing to do too, to say the most extreme, like, I'm horrific because yeah. you're waiting for someone to be like, well, no, you're not. Yeah. And he doesn't really do that. <laughs> he says, do you know this is the first time I've seen you without your glasses? And it's yeah. like, he's affirming her, but it's like, I'm almost not going to play into your little yeah. pity party. I'm going to just say something kind about you and respect the moment you're in, like you said, but not kind of play the game the way you want to play it. And yeah. like respond she, to the thing you've said. Yeah. It's, it's like, she kind of ratchets up the drama but he doesn't enter into the drama or even really try to ratchet it down. He just kind of affirms her existence and that, he, that she's, um, yeah, that she's a person worth seeing and knowing. Mm-hmm. And yes, they're very sweet. I also having, uh, I don't know if you have siblings, but having various siblings, very relatable that you have a personal moment and then you look over and discover that there's sibling, yes. <laughs> A sibling and slash or three eternal beings uh, waiting to sweep right. you off into a an adventure. <laughs> yeah, it is actually a really great... The moment that you think you kind of know what's happening here, uh-huh. like you really think, okay, the chapter's winding down, they've had this sweet moment, the family, it's all very... And then it's like, oh, no, we're all about to be whisked off into whatever. We, It's like, affirm your feelings, Meg, but also we don't have time for what yeah. you're dealing with right now. We got some, got to go save your father yeah. and maybe the world. And <laughs> <laughs> You know, there's nothing better. I mean, sometimes the, the best thing for a existential or an ego pr- crisis is just distraction and a good work good thing of work to do so she's pr- presented yeah. with just that yeah a purpose to be swept off into oh are there any final i'm trying to think if there's anything else are there any other final thoughts things you you can't pass through this week without noting from this chapter well i've sort of already said this but i just i really appreciate not only the like the way it ends with the world is bigger and there's more mystery, mm-hmm. but also just the fact that when she's talking to Calvin and he gives her this very normal explanation mm-hmm. for where her father could be, like yeah. everyone says he's run off with some woman, you yeah. know, and then he, and I love that he says, you know, that's not true. And I know that's not, you know, he's yeah. on her side, but it almost is this, this reminder of, well, it would be sort of easier and mm-hmm. people would understand it more for us to stay living in the world of normal explanations mm-hmm. and to just kind of keep going as if everything will mm-hmm. always be this way. And then for her not only to deny it and then to describe, you know, this very strange scientific mm-hmm. journey that he's had, but then for that to be quite vindicated of, mm-hmm. you know, all these people who are saying there's something more going on, they're about to be proven quite right in a yeah. very dramatic way. Yes, And it just really, like I said earlier, it makes me feel like, that's the kind of thing I want to find a way to do with my people in my sphere is to be like, there are voices around you that are going to say, no, things just are the way they are. And yes. they're always going to be this way. They're quite inevitable. Yeah. Um, and that's been one of the things I've really, you know, a strange mercy about coronavirus mm-hmm. has been, there are lots of things that we all thought were quite inevitable that we're always going to keep running the way they always have. Yeah. And they halted. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe there are some things that we should halt ourselves that, yeah. that have always gone on that are not the way things are supposed to be. And to have it, like you said, told in this really dramatic, 
way and this beautiful, mysterious story, I think is a helpful motivating factor because the work of us changing things about our world is quite um, boring and ordinary sometimes. Yeah. And just like, you know, the way that we change institutions and communities and families can be really boring. And so to think about it in terms of a story and yeah. to try and make it as different and magical and to take this ordinary thing and make yeah. it strange um, is a good motivator, I think, to be like, okay, things could be different. And how do we imagine things being yeah. different than they are? And I think I think that's one of the essential themes of the book, too, is that sometimes the way we interpret things in a boring way uh, is because uncertainty is frightening to us. And so we want to be able to land on certainty and predictability mm-hmm. and, you know, like whether it's with uh, little Charles Wallace that people kind of don't know what to do with him. And so they'd rather <laughs> just like have an explanation and shut it down. Or with, you know, Meg's mo- uh, father being gone, we kind of want to just explain it away and have it be gone. I think there's this real deep fear of uncertainty or not being able to pin things down or understand them. But I think sometimes that can, we can chase that that fear of uncertainty to death and we can kind of create actual very heavy oppressive systems for ourselves because we're afraid of imagining what the world might be if it were entirely different and so I do love that about this book that it's saying what if life is not as easily certifiable as that what if things aren't as kind of certain but that actually means not that we're less in control but that there's more options, more beauty, more possibilities than yeah. we can imagine. And that we might actually have to like live by faith and that that actually mm. might be a fruitful and life-giving thing. This kind of wrestling between the ordinariness and the security and the belonging mm. of their family, but then also the making strange, that there's something much more than we can possibly imagine. And that, that opens up these new possibilities. And those new possibilities invite us into the narrative, invite us to be participants in the grand story. So we'll see where Meg's father is and what um, shenanigans uh, the Mrs. Who's, What's It's, and which get up to. Also, I love that they're bickering over uh, <laughs> as they're flying off. Just because you're a few billion years. It's, <laughs> it's so fun. She, she makes even the crazy characters kind of have a very human side to them. This has been so fun, Caitlin. Um, yeah. Tell, yeah, thank you so much for joining me on this week. Tell people where they can find your writing, your wit, uh, and what you're up to. Yeah, so um, I spend way too much time on Twitter, so you can <laughs> find me there at Caitlin Chess. Um, and yeah, you can pre-order my book anywhere that you pre-order books. Um, I like to avoid Amazon, so if you mm-hmm. want to go to, you know, your local bookstore, IndieBound, something like that, or from the publisher, um, mm-hmm. it's called The Liturgy of Politics, and the subtitle is Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor. Mm, beautiful. Yes. One of my friends calls Amazon the one giant bookstore. So hopefully we'll have more than the one giant, uh, giant evil yeah. bookstore when we're done with all this. <laughs> uh, well, this has been so delightful. Thank you. Thank you, Caitlin, for joining me. Um, and everybody else, I hope you enjoyed listening. Go uh, let me see your thoughts about making strange, about belonging, about making room for each other's big feelings. I can't wait to see what you made of this week's chapter. Uh, I'll see you all next week.